Everybody, welcome to Revved Up for Sunday. We are the clergy of St. Mark's Episcopal Church in New Canaan, Connecticut. I'm Peter Walsh. I'm Elizabeth Garnsey. I'm Justin Crisp. And every week, the three of us take a look at the scriptures, in particular, the gospel for the coming Sunday. And the gospel for this coming Sunday, well, I was a little bit in the UG category. You UGged <laughs> me a little bit, and so we were looking to Justin. Bill Belichick said, do your job. Jesus says, do your job. Let's take a look. This is Luke 17, 5 to 10. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave who had just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink? Later, you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. Exclamation point. End of reading. Oh, wow. No, even the gospel of the Lord at the end of that. Uh, Well, since you brought up Bill Belichick, uh, I'm going to out myself as a Bill Belichick fan, which is liable to get me fired from St. Mark's Episcopal Church in New Canaan, Connecticut, given the sports affiliations of the of the rector here. But uh, anyway, um, since you started with Bill Belichick and I'm the Bill Belichick fan and I'm also the only one who can seem to stand this particular uh, this particular passage. Why don't I give it a go? Give it a roll. Um, I, I didn't say that, by the way. It was put upon me. <laughs> oh my gosh. We're off to a great start. Here. <laughs> um, I think that this passage um, needs to be set in its wider context and not just in the way that everybody on planet Earth says, oh, in order to understand this passage, you need to set it in its wider context. But I mean, the, the, the intervention that Jesus is making here rhetorically, I don't think is comprehensible without looking at what came just before it. So I'm going to take the liberty of just reading because it's very, very, very short. But beginning at the at the top of uh, chapter 17. So our reading began at verse five. I'm going to read verses one through four. That Jesus said to his disciples, "Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to anyone by whom they come." I'm just going to stop there. So, occasions for stumbling. This is referring to the scandalon, right? The stumbling block of the gospel. And you can um, so scandalon. The the Greek word is the word from which we get our uh, the, the root of our word scandal, right? So we can also some other translations. Um, render this as um, occasions for offense. Um, So anyway, you can keep that in mind. Occasions for offense, occasions for stumbling, the occasions for this scandal on to trip you up are bound to come, but woe to anyone by whom they come. It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Question mark, who are the little ones? Uh, Be on your guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender 
And if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. And there you have that seven, 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 right? 70 times 70 times 70 times 70. This is a biblical way of saying as many times as necessary, AKA ad infinitum, like forever, right? You just have to forgive over and over and over and over and over again if this disciple repents. This is when the disciples say to Jesus, or the apostles say to Jesus, presumably the 12, the, the, the inner circle, uh, say to Jesus, increase our faith. And then comes the intervention, right? And so I think the response, increase our faith, it's, a, um, it's motivated um, in one of two ways. One, perhaps the disciples are bristling at the idea that they have to forgive one another 70 times, 70 times, 70 times, 70 times, 70, AKA an infinite number of times. Or, I mean, that's a hard thing, right? Jesus is pretty um, uncompromising about it. He's just pretty uncompromising. You just, you gotta do it. Uh, perhaps they're bristling at that and they're asking him, increase our faith. This is what you want us to do, increase our faith. Or they're bristling, um, they're not bristling, or they're nervous about being a scandal on, about causing one of the little ones to stumble. And so they're, they're, uh, they're asking Jesus, increase our faith so that we don't cause anyone to stumble because he's just, he's just said the, the costs of that are pretty high. So it's coming from a place of nervousness or from a place of like uh, both nervousness and bristling against the difficulty of Jesus's teaching here. And that sets the stage, that gets us started. That's why they say increase our faith. And then Jesus says what he says. Yeah, mm -hmm. well said. Agreed. I, w I think the lectionary makes a, a, I do too, actually. a mistake here and should I do put too. that first section with that and include it. It's not included in the lectionary. Anymore. Right. Yeah. It's very odd. It's very odd. It is. Yeah. I wonder why. Yeah. Who knows? Hmm. Well, I appreciate that you brought that in because I really think it does matter in this case because I don't know that the second section of what we've just, what Peter just read is, is completely a sequitur. A sequitur. It's right. probably um, right. not necessarily related to the mustard seed passage. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I don't know, but I don't hate this this part, the mustard seed. I mean, to me, I, it brings up some very warm and fuzzy memories of Sunday school. And, you know, we each got a little seed that you could barely see on your paper and you had to use Elmer's. And, you know, mine always got sort of buried in the pool of white Elmer's. But, you know, you're supposed to glue it to a page and then draw a giant tree. You know, it was a very sweet love little story to tell. Yeah. But, um, you know, I don't know that Jesus here is talking about size. I mean... Mm. He does say the size of a mustard seed, but maybe he means the, the scale of a mustard seed. Um, you know, it, it's more the nature. I, will, I like to read it as if you had faith, the nature of a mustard seed, hmm. you know, that, that can become the impossible. Because he says, you know, be uprooted and planted in... The, in well, first of all, it's impossible that um, a little seed without the power of God and the design of, of nature... Um, that it could grow into an enormous mulberry tree, mm. um, which may or may not be an actual mulberry tree, but sycamore, whatever it's supposed to be, and be uprooted, which is ridiculous, by talking to it, and planted in the sea, even absurd. So these are just un unrational <laughs> things, you know, and I think that the nature of the seed is to become this incredible tree, 
and G- and God can do infinitely more than even that un- confounding miracle, mm. you know, of making a seed a t- seed into this beautiful enormous tree, and you know we water, we tend, as Paul says, but God gives the growth, you know, and hmm. and I love the idea of the nature of the seed. So I'm bending it because I don't know if that's what it means, but it does. It's confusing to me to think that um, you know the reason I'm, I feel this way is because. Um, the, the, I have a lot of things in my life that I cannot solve and mm. that I am actually at wit's end, you know, wit's end just mm. in the last 24 hours. Mm. And, you know, what's the faith the size of a mustard seed for me? I have faith, do something, you know, I mean, fill in the blank, do that. Mm. So I don't think it's really that. And I don't, I think that for me, the faith, the nature of the seed is to say God can do infinitely more than I can do in this situation and I may or may not live to see it a tree takes a very long time to grow and you know I I don't know what's going to happen down the road in you know in life so so to me the nature of the seed is to just be where you know be let myself be watered let myself do my job and uh, carry on and have the faith that things will be okay. Hmm. And we don't really know what that means. And we can't just solve it the way we want. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I don't know if that's helpful at all. But I do, I, I have to think that the faith gets you somewhere and it at least makes our, our it avails ourself of the sunshine and the water that we need from God and, you know, I can't, I can't solve it. Hmm. So I don't think, I think it's up, it, it is a stumbling block to say, if only you had more faith, you could solve those problems or you would be healed <laughs> or that person wouldn't have died or, you know, it's not, yeah. it's not helpful to have this kind of a literal interpretation. Hmm. So, uh, hmm. yeah, wow. Um, just to, in response to that, uh, didn't mean to lay on you at the, my, my bombastic <laughs> outset that you didn't like the passage. What, I mean, part of what we were referring to was what the, the second portion I of the passage. I did harumph at the second portion. You harumphed, you harumphed <laughs> yeah. at Worthless Slaves or somewhere along there. But, uh, so I, I want to make sure I get you harumphing in the right place. In the wrong place. Uh, okay, so a faith in mustard seed. I don't know what I was doing in, in CCD when I was a boy, but I don't remember any mustard seeds, and I certainly didn't draw any pictures with trees. But anyway, um, I wonder what the heck was happening there at St. Thomas the Apostle. But anyway, I just want to come back to this. So this faith, the mustard seed, is, mm-hmm. is one, of these, um, one of these logia that's very well known. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I want to pose a question to you, too, because it's ambiguous. Does this mean, dude, you got zero faith. If you had a little bit of faith, you could get this mulberry tree to to be uprooted. Mulberry trees have terrible root systems mm. and planted it in the ocean, which of course, as you point out, is absurd. Or in Matthew's version, you could say to this mountain, mm-hmm. move the mountain, right? Mm-hmm. So that either means you got infinitesimal zero faith, less than a mustard seed, or it means just, hey, you've got all this faith. Just use a little dinky portion of mm-hmm. your faith mm-hmm. and it is efficacious beyond your knowing and beyond mm. your belief. Hmm. 
I think there's two possible ways to think about this. Mm-hmm. Mm. And yeah. the translation, again, where it gets stuck in from Greek to English translations about how we think about this. So that's one. Mm. Is it yeah. you, you have zero, you need, a, you need an electron microscope to find your faith, <laughs> or you just need a little bit of your faith? Right. I'll, I'll pose that before I get to the second one of my, what right. to think, how to think about this mustard seeds. What do you think of that? I think that's really good. Um, I, I think that it's the latter, not the former. I think that this is a word of consolation to the disciples. It's both a word of like, I mean, he's both trying to correct them and I think he's trying to console them. Um, and and here, here's why. I think that Jesus is not, um, Jesus is actually moving faith out of the realm of size and scale altogether. That's actually mm-hmm. his rhetorical point. So mm-hmm. the disciples say, increase our faith either because they're nervous about the teaching on forgiveness or they're nervous about being a scandal to the little ones. And then they say, increase our faith, presumably because they think they think they don't have enough, right? That's where they start. The disciples think they don't have enough. Jesus' response is, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed. So I don't think he's responding, dude, you got zero. If you could just like squeeze a little harder and grind a little harder at your faith, you're going to get more, right? I think it's intended to be a word of consolation. But I'm really influenced here by um, the fact that I'm teaching this class here at St. Mark's about Karl Barth. Mm -hmm. And Barth loves this passage because Barth loves the idea of faith. And he reads this passage as, um, as saying, Faith, what, what Jesus is basically saying is faith is not something which actually admits of scale. If you think it's a mustard seed, great. If you think it's a coconut, fine too. If faith is not actually that kind of a thing at all. Faith for Bart, uh, Bart in the Church Dogmatics gives this um, image for it. It is to awake and discover that you are in your father's house and on your mother's lap. It's everything that we associate with that kind of feeling of being at home. It's an existential reality. It's something which, which um, encompasses your whole being. It is to live in this universe where Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise, I am there for you which is something that Bart says in um, the book that we're working on, working through here at St. Mark's Dogmatics and Outline, that God's promise is, I am there for you, and that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. And you just, you just awake. It's to recognize, oh, wow, I am, I, I, I am already in a relationship with this Jesus. God is already here for me in Jesus. And then it is, the, um, it is to live and to move in that relationship. So it actually has nothing to do with being convinced. <laughs> like faith is not something which is like shades of being convinced and the opposite of faith is not actually doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief, which is something totally different. It is to deny the relationship to you of God in Christ, which actually does exist, but it's just not to recognize it, not to be awake to it, etc. Um, so it's, 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 um, it's perfectly compatible with doubt. It's perfectly compatible with the vicissitudes of the human relationship with God. It's, but it, it, it has a kind of all or nothing character to it. Mm-hmm. You're either awake to it and you're within this world or you're not awake to it and you're not within this world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that um, so I, I have to say, I'm really, I've not thought about it this way, but I'm really taken with the fact that um, being planted in the sea, I can't believe I've never thought of this before, uh, but uh, Elizabeth says all kinds of things I've never thought of before. Being planted in the sea is totally unrational, is what she said, totally unrational. And I wonder if, um, 
a non-literal reading of this passage, a spiritual reading of this passage, would say that's because this kind of faith, this existential leap into a world in which God is there for you, um, is unrational. It's not something you argue your way to. It's not something, it's not like you, um, as I said in my BART class yesterday, it's not like you read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and you started out unconvinced and then by the end of it you were convinced, right? That's not, that's, that's not it. There's no proof for the existence of God that can get you into this place. You either wake up, you're either awake to it or, or, you're, or you're asleep to it. It has a kind of all or nothing character in that regard. Mm -hmm. And so the disciples are asking, increase our faith. And the Lord is saying, I'm already in relationship to you. I'm already there for you. This is not a rational thing. You're okay. You're okay. We're okay. I am there for you. So that, I think it's a word of grace. Mm -hmm. And so I, that's why I, if I had to put it into like zero or, you know, you've either it's chastising the disciples because they've got no faith or if, he, if Jesus is saying, even if you have just a little, it's going to work. If I had to put it in terms of scale like that, I would pick the latter. But I actually think that what he's doing is he's taking faith completely outside of scale. Mm -hmm. Super I, interesting. Yeah, wow. it is. I think, Bart, you know, you've just laid out something very elegant, you know, and I think I've just said... I think he means the nature, if you had yes, faith, exactly. the nature of a mustard seed. So I think that we're on the same page with that. And, exactly. You know, so is your, is your nature of a mustard seed <clears throat> something like because the mustard seed is alive and you have an alive faith? Or the, just say hmm. another word about nature of mustard seed. Um, well, I think as, as Justin has so well explained, it's, it's more a state of our consciousness. You know, are we awake hmm. to the reality that we cannot see? And faith isn't an amount of faith or, you know, it can't be quantified. It just has to be lived into and realized and, um, or gifted to you. You know, I mm -hmm. think it's an, it's an invitation. And so maybe they're asking the wrong question and, and as Jesus likes to do, answers yeah. the way he wants to answer. But, you know, it's, to me, it's not a, how much faith they have or how little or zero, but um, what kind of, what's the nature of their faith? And, and are they looking for you know, whiz-bang miracles all the time, or can they just rest in the knowledge that they've been sent to do something, they're doing it, they may not see the results all the time. Hmm. So uh, you, you guys, uh, I mean, you both work like amazingly hard and so you don't have time to do a lot of different things, but if you were gonna say to the people in TV land, there was some book somewhere, Paul in our world, mm. Paul says more about faith and is probably we would consider the Christian expert on the question of faith. Mm -hmm. But if someone out there was gonna to look to something that you might have read somewhere along the way about faith, to, mm. to plunge into the articulation of theology of faith, you mm. pointed toward Karl Barth, is there anyone yeah. else that comes to mind uh, mm. where someone who's trying to understand faith might, might turn? Mm. Whew, there's a lot of books. Yeah, I mean, there's a fabulous new professor um, uh, who I was blessed just recently to meet at Yale Divinity School named Teresa Morgan. And uh, uh, Professor Morgan is a priest in the Church of England. Um, she's a long, long, long time parish priest uh, at a parish outside, just outside of, um, or I think it's in Oxfordshire, but it's like right outside um, Oxford proper. Um, please forgive me, Professor Morgan, not that Professor Morgan's listening to me on this podcast, but anyway, uh, she's a long, 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 long time, um, a priest associate, as we would call it, in the Episcopal Church. Um, there, um, and she, but she taught at Oxford, she's come to Yale from Oxford, and her whole interpretation of faith is, um, 
is that faith is about trust. And she's, she's writing a systematic theology of faith of sorts. Um, and her, her book, um, Roman Faith, Christian Faith, I think is the, is the book, would be interesting for anybody who's looking for like, what does this word actually mean? What is the history? How is the word faith, how, the Greek word pistis, how is the Greek word pistis used by Roman and Greek philosophers? And then St. Paul takes it and twists it and uh, appropriates it for Christian use. And it sets faith in that larger context. The takeaway from that is that faith is for her trust, which is actually what Bart says too, although she has some other disagreements with Bart downstream from the assertion that, um, that faith is trust. But that book is rather, um, that book is rather difficult. Um, Professor Morgan is an incredible pastor actually with a real, pa- real passion for pastoral ministry, but that book is written for classic scholars and for theologians, well, many of whom uh, are, are you know, listening to this podcast. So if that's your jam, go for it. If that's not your jam, I would really say just chapter one of Dogmatics and Outline by Karl Barth is really, really gorgeous. A lot of the language is non-technical and it's very, very short. It's like, you know, four pages on what it means to really turn over one's life to Jesus in complete and utter trust that he is going to be there for you. And that's the heart of faith in this kind of all or nothing, all or nothing, being awake to it or not being awake to it way. I think that's, the Bart is actually perhaps surprisingly more accessible than Professor Morgan's book. But Professor Morgan's book is totally fascinating if you're interested in the exegetical, uh, you know, the, the exegetical background um, of all of this talk about faith, whether in the Gospels or in Paul. Okay. Well, that's a great recommendation. I have centered my reading more on the practice of faith, mm. I think, yeah. than the meaning of the word. and. Um, <clears throat> of course, in seminary, I did a lot of that reading, which is wonderful, but guided. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That helps a lot. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I would say Thomas Keating, An Invitation to Love, is one of my favorite books mm. because it was se- seminal for me in forming my own practice of contemplative prayer mm. and things like yeah. that. And, it, and it, um, he's, he talks about putting yourself in the pathway of, of faith and faith being the direct communion with the divine you know, more of a state of being than, you know, hopes and dreams or whatever other reductive thing I might say about yeah. it. Mm. But, I, you know, he, he gives uh, the, the real guidance to the practice, the bedrock centering practice of silence and, and putting yourself in God's presence. Another one, I, I always go to, to Cynthia Bourgeau for all of her books on, yes. mm-hmm. on Southern Prayer and stuff. But um, David Stendhal Rask comes to mind today. I don't know why, but he, he wrote a book about gratitude. Mm. You know, gratitude is mm-hmm. the heart of prayer. That's one of my favorite books. And I think gratitude is a great equivalent of faith because it, it puts you in a posture of, I didn't do this. Someone else did, and I'm so grateful. You know, And mm. it's yeah. more of a disposition um, that you can practice, you know, you can literally practice it every day, every night, every minute in response to things that are hard or great or, you know, it's, <clears throat> I, I think, so for me, the faith comes more down to these ways you can enter into it and, and it feels like a mystery, you know, as Justin, mm-hmm. you so well explained in the, in the beginning um, of your comments that it's awakening to the reality that you can't see. Mm. And you do have to practice that. I mean, it's not just a theory. You have to really do things that alter your consciousness. Yeah. So to me, practicing silence, 
um, you know, an intentional silence, not just being quiet, but, you know, the intentional silence of receiving God's presence. And then responding with gratitude, you know, at least in the, the more you do it, the quicker you get there, but it can take a while. Um, so those are two couple yeah, thank of you. Thank I you. Yeah. yeah, thank you for that. I, I'm reminded of my meditations this morning, which were utterly horrible and abysmal. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, the days when it seems to come, the days when it doesn't. And I'll just uh, complete that thought. Uh, Rowan mm. Greer, um, who mm. was such a love for me mm-hmm. as a professor, he used to, when we were talking about faith, he used to say that um, if you want to get it, it's like if Rowan was, was a single man um, uh, and uh, avoiding marriage is, with all the power in his life. But he used to say, if you want to get married, and this is perhaps, this, I've been out of seminary a long time, so this would not be the case. This was before Bumble and Tinder. Uh, he used to say, if you want to get married, you just go to the bar and you hang out there long enough and eventually you're going to meet somebody. And he said, faith is the same way. You, if you go hang out, if you go hang out in the milieu of it, eventually it's going to come your way. So just hang on. Yeah. So uh, anyway, well, don't, I'll just leave it at that with yeah. reference to Bumble and Tinder as a, as a, faith, as a faith metaphor. Oh my uh, gosh. Okay, I want to switch gears. So. Yeah, I was beginning to say, we're talking about gratitude. What about the, the slaves here so who don't get thanked? Yeah, yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, okay, that's so good. That, that book that David said already, almost everything he wrote, incredible. But anyway, so if we move here from, I mean, we in your theological world, there's a whole world that's justification by faith, mm. and that's why we need to talk about it a little bit, even if I didn't want to talk about it. And then we get justification by works, because the next one is about works. You, this mm. is the Bill Belichick, do your job. Mm. Um, you worthless slave, this was your job to do it. Now do it if you're expecting someone to say thank you. Forget about it. Mm. You just did what you was the right thing to do. Okay, so mm. uh, uh, Father Gratitude, take it away here and see what you have a word about that with reference to... Uh, is the second passage, portion of this passage. Yeah, so I think it's genius on the part of Luke's redactor at the very least to put this passage right here so that it can be read in the context of these other passages. Um, perhaps Jesus didn't say it like, perhaps Jesus didn't say each of these um, sayings one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other in a literal historical discourse, but the redactor of Luke is putting them here because the redactor of Luke thinks that they belong somehow to this moment, this discursive moment where Jesus this is completing his, uh, his journey to Jerusalem, where he's going to die, etc. We've talked about that journey to Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke a lot. Um, the reason why I think it's genius is, because, is for this very reason, actually. Uh, because, um, okay, so I'll just say a couple of things. One, I think that the language here is a scandal on to us in our contemporary moment. Right. It just is. It just is. Right. And not a scandal on in the way that like if you if you cause scandal, it's going to like, you know, millstone around your neck. God's going to punish you, et cetera. I just mean that it's an impediment. It's a stumbling block. The language of slavery. I think that particularly for Americans, not solely for Americans, but particularly for Americans, given the history of race based slavery um, in our country, um, this passage, any language of slaves and enslavement is a massive stumbling block to understanding what Jesus is getting at, right? And to be clear, in this, in, in Jesus's Greco-Roman uh, Hellenistic Jewish context, um, slavery was not race-based. Does not mean that slavery was morally good or righteous, etc., or even that I think that Jesus is endorsing slavery by using the metaphor of slavery, a metaphor that in his culture would have been common and accessible to people. I don't necessarily think he's morally 
In fact, I'll just say, I do not believe that he's morally endorsing slavery, even in that non-race-based context, right? But just to name, it is an impediment, and I think we have to, we have to like catapult ourselves behind the scandal which the metaphor admittedly makes in our, admittedly creates in our hearts and our minds in order to try to understand what Jesus is actually getting at. And what Jesus is actually getting at here is that these are people who do their job. They're people who do their duty, and they don't expect thanks because it's their duty. Uh, and it's not just, I mean, and the difference between a slave here and the slave is not an employee, which is one of the reasons why I think Jesus uses the metaphor. There's no return for the enslaved person's labor because the person is a slave. And I think that what the, um, uh, the, the, the reason that he uses this metaphor is to point, is again to address the original scandal, the original stumbling block over which the disciples tripped on their way to increase our faith. So they say increase our faith because the disciples are intimidated either by the demand that they not cause a little one to stumble or the demand to forgive 70 times 70 times 70 times 70 times 70, etc. Um, and Jesus responds by saying, look, faith is, is not something that admits of degrees. You, it's being awake, right, to the kingdom of God, which he's going to go on to say later in this chapter or in the very next one, is among you, right? The kingdom of God is right here, right now. And if you're awake to it, this is just the natural way to be. You don't you, and it's nothing that you actually expect to be rewarded for. It's nothing you expect to be like, um, it's nothing you expect to return for because it's actually, it's not a big deal. If you're living in the kingdom of God, if you're living in this world, if you've been awakened to the fact that God is there for you in me, Jesus seems to be saying, Forgiveness 70 times 70 times 70 times 70 times 70 is just going to be the natural way of things for you. It's actually not going to be a very good deal. If somebody tried to thank you for doing so, if somebody said, oh my gosh, it's monumental that you did this, your response would be, oh, thank you very much. That was, that's, that's very kind, but actually it's no big deal. Um, and I, I think in the context of this, like justification by faith, justification by works, it's interesting to me theologically that there's no reward, there's no return for the labor here because that's a major concern of um, not just the reformers. Meister Eckhart in the medieval period was also concerned about this. There's concern around salvation by works, justification by works, that um, if you perform the work in order to be saved, you're receiving a return for the work, and it's not actually purely altruistic. It's not purely other or neighbor-centered, because you're doing it in order to get something. And so people like Eckhart struggle with this, mystics like Marguerite Perrette. Luther doesn't invent justification by faith out of nowhere. He inherits all of those concerns about reward motivation, that you're going to do good because you're going to get rewarded by God with entrance into heaven, which would make which would somehow make your good work self-serving and so would make it not a good work. And so Luther's whole point is that you're saved by faith and then of course you naturally are transformed by that faith and then you do good for the sake of doing good with no expectation of return because your works are not going to be rewarded in that way. Your faith has already made you well. God is already in relationship with you. It's all done. Now you can be freed to do good just for its own sake without any self-serving, not even the self-serving of seeking a reward. 
And so that, anyway, that's a lot, a lot, a lot of blah, blah, blah. But that's why I actually, I think this is a very, very, very interesting passage. And it's interesting that Luke puts it here. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Interesting, yeah. Um, I, I, I think that Luke here has in mind possibly his, his community and these apostles who are now the first generation of the early church. And they, um, you know, they're, they're, it's, a, it's a heavy burden to be in charge of something new and unknown. And, hmm. um, you know, maybe they're not feeling the fervor that they had when they walked around with Jesus. Or, you know, maybe things are just so ho-hum so often or a struggle or whatever it is. I don't know. But hmm. clearly they might not see themselves as serving but needing to be um, impressive leaders, you know, mm. Mm. and maybe, uh, you know, they hear they're saying increase our faith or Luke has placed this conversation ahead of this passage, increase our faith, um, make us more powerful or something like that. I don't know what they might, what Luke might have in mind, but in this section, <clears throat> maybe he's saying, don't forget that you're actually a servant. You know, you're a servant of God. And not only that, you're this, as, as Pius Eleven or whoever said, you're the servant of the servants of God. Hmm. And, um, <laughs> and we've inherited that, that, you know, leaders of the church are meant to be the servants of the servant of God. And um, I think that there is a lot in that context to read it differently. Um, you know, we're just... It might be hard, it might be exhausting, it might be thankless, it might be very low on the, on the level of status or um, even never be seen, you might work behind the scenes, but you're doing what you're supposed to do, you're doing what you ought to do, and um, you're, you know, you're keeping the house running, not to draw on that sort of slave metaphor, but... Um, there is no modern equivalent for the slave and, and master of this no. time and place. But, I, you know, I don't know, somehow at the end, that last word, we are worth, so when you have done all that you were ordered to do, you say, we are worthless slaves. We've done only what we ought to have done. Um, somehow I thought of Thomas Aquinas at the end of his life, you know, who'd, who'd written his oh. tomes of work and, and contributed so much. and. Yeah. Plumb the depths of wisdom and mm, thought and nice. inspiration, and he, he says at the end, "Everything I've done is straw." Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, maybe he had it, had that glimpse of what this means. That, yeah. You mm. know, really, he's still just a servant in the house of the Lord. Um, oh my gosh, I can't resist underlining that. That is so true. It's an incredible thing. I'll just say, I think the best works of theology are the ones which are unfinished, which gives me some consolation because almost every, <laughs> everything except my dissertation is unfinished. Maybe everything except my dissertation will be unfinished. Uh, and my dissertation was only finished because it just had to be finished. Um, so Thomas, had he kept writing at the speed and the pace at which he was writing, he could have finished it before he died. He absolutely could have finished it. He projected it out. He knew how much he, he had left to write. And he was dictating to, um, uh, to a scribe at such a clip, he absolutely could have finished it. It was, the finish line was in sight. And then he has this mystical experience and he's like, no, it's all strong. Oh. That's the mustard seed. Mm -hmm. So that is um, really, really, you, you've touched on something that is, has a great depth to it and uh, is stirring, stirring. Yeah. 
Uh, you know, as we come to wrap this up, just a, just a few closing comments. One is, I mean, we just need to just get used to the fact that the master-slave relationship is Jesus's favorite metaphor in Luke hmm. when he talks about domestic relationships. It's the favorite one. It's the one that's in there most, and it just is. I think when you first said this is uh, an offense to us nowadays, I, I started to laugh. I was in a totally different place, which this is not about the participation trophy of the oh. <laughs> soccer team. Okay? Oh, yeah. This is not about the participation <laughs> trophy. There's no trophy Yeah, there's here. no trophy. There's no trophy here because you chase the ball around That's the middle right. school soccer field for half an hour and you touched it once. Okay, nobody cares. Uh, I, I got a lot to say about participation trophies, you can say. Uh, the next, you know, so how do we download this in our world? The third thing is um, downloading this in the world. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or attending uh, the sheep in the field? And the answer to that is none of us. Right. None of us have a slave, and, and most of us are not uh, plowing or tending any sheep. So already this thing arrives with us with a kind of like, mm -hmm. huh? Right. Uh, and then, um, you, you know, also here, there's no... We've just gotten used to reading the gospel in the same way Jesus has used this relationship over and over. He almost always does the God of reversal and shifts it around. Mm -hmm. And so we keep expecting the things, you know, the, the, the master is going to serve the slave. There's none of that. So yeah. the, the, the irony here is there's no irony. He mm -hmm. lands it flat. And so it's like a oh, kapoom when you get hit like in the forehead with, with this uh, Bill Belichick. What Bill Belichick says, when uh, the defensive back doesn't cover the fastest guy in the other team and they throw a bomb and they lose in the last moment, and his response is he didn't do his job. It was his job to stop the guy from running by him and catching the ball in the end zone. It's your job to serve. Get used to it. That's your job. Right. And and uh, so uh, and I, I think that you can't finish it in any better place than your, your comment about humility. That mm -hmm. if we had the beatific vision, if we saw the divine, if we knew what we were actually had faith in and we knew it not in a mirror dimly, but in real life, we would be psyched to be a servant and we would not be looking for gratitude for it. It would just be because the awesomeness of God would just make it all like, man, I can't wait to serve this Lord. Mm. So there it is. We got to wrap it up because we've been at this for four hours and 23 minutes and you're 70 still, times seven times 70 times still seven. Still hanging in here with us as I take my paper and flip it into the pew. So thank you so much for hanging here with us. We are really touched that, that you, you stick with it. It's a, it's a sign of your own faith life uh, that, you, that you stay with us as we try to figure our way. I'm grateful to you, Justin. I'm grateful to you, Elizabeth, and I'm grateful mm. to all of you. Uh, we love it when you like, subscribe, and when you, you reach out and have a word with us. So peace be with you. God bless you, and see you again. Thank you.